You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 268 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. Today is the day Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, the 20th of July. And I do believe he walked on the moon. I'm not one of those people who believed it was all a scam. Uh, Of course, I can't prove any of it. Uh, I wasn't there myself, but I have a good feeling that he actually did walk on the moon. And um, I noticed when I was looking up Neil Armstrong a bit, because I I knew I was going to release this episode on the day he walked on the moon. And uh, I noticed that uh, he was born on the 5th of August, and Louis Armstrong, the great Satchmo, was born on the 4th of August. Different years, though. Anyway, I always felt like Neil Armstrong right before I drink ayahuasca or smoke DMT. Or do any of that kind of stuff. Because it's like when you partake of the psychedelic substance. It always feels like you're taking one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. I mean you gotta you gotta set the bar high. I mean always when I go into the psychedelic experience. I'm not going in there for personal reasons. You know some sometimes I do. But mainly... I'm going in there trying to bring something back for all of mankind. I don't always do that, but that's what my aim is anyway. I think that's what we all should do when we partake of psychedelic substances. I mean, we should do it for ourselves, but we really should do it for all of mankind. I mean, it's like in Buddhism, you know, you... Don't become enlightened for egotistical reasons. You do it to help others. So it's the opposite of egotistical. Not saying I'm enlightened. I'm just... It's a metaphor. Anyway, enough rambling. In this episode, my guest is Chris Becker. Chris is a scientist, an inventor, as well as an author. And he holds a PhD in chemistry written many peer-reviewed scientific articles and has many U.S. patents. He's managed laboratories and research groups and co-founded two companies. Um, He's also practiced Buddhist meditation for many years and recently he has published a book called Healing with Psychedelics and that's why he is a guest on the podcast today. Here's Chris Becker. So thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation, Alex. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and, and what you do? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I'm um, recently an author, uh, but I've uh, been uh, for many years a scientist, uh, recently retired for uh, 40 years. I was a professional scientist, a PhD scientist, um, and author of many uh, peer-reviewed publications and patents, um, and um, <clears throat> so uh, I started in chemistry, and um, 
got more into analytical chemistry and biochemistry as the years went on. So, uh, and founded a couple com companies along the way. So I bring a science background. Um, also, um, a lot of years of meditation. So I combine the uh, uh, science and meditation. Um, so I've left the science behind, at least the act of work. Uh, it's certainly in my mind. Um, and, uh, but I'm still meditating. And I've gone on a journey with psychedelics. Uh, that uh, has been a healing uh, journey. So that's a real quick uh, thumbnail. Did you discover psychedelics uh, later in life or was it always throughout your life? Well, um, in the early 70s, when I was, very, when I was a young man, my early 20s, um, there were uh, popular books by Carlos Castaneda, uh, or Castanedas, I have to remember the exact name, <clears throat> Maybe uh, some of your listeners uh, know of that. And um, they were um, got me interested in the spiritual world and the psychedelic world, shamanism. Um, and um, in those years, uh, peyote was, uh, I think, the uh, primary psychedelic that Castanetas uh, wrote about. And uh, we, uh, some friends and I, uh, did uh, a, a series of uh, peyote journeys uh, in the, in those years, and so that's how I got started. Um, maybe did a couple LSD trips along the way in those years, and a mushroom trip. But um, those were the early years, and then fast forward 40 years without any uh, psychedelics uh, to more my more recent uh, uh, time, where I picked that up again, but in a different context, in the context of uh, uh, psychotherapy and spiritual exploration. One topic that always interests me is uh, the art of uh, alchemy. N not the term used uh, a lot in New Age uh, as, you know, uh, transforming yourself is a sort of alchemy. I mean more like the laboratory alchemy. And you as a, uh, uh, a professional uh, scientist in the field of chemistry, which these days, most people call alchemy pseudo-chemistry in a way, but uh, it was the chemistry of the day uh, before we evolved it into uh, the modern uh, chemistry. Um, but uh, it's interesting because I wanted to ask you then, because um, the main reason mainstream science rejected alchemy was because it incorporated things like meditation, prayer, and other spiritual things in the uh, scientific uh, chemistry kind of uh, things they were doing. Um, and I was, I was always been curious if it could be possible to do real chemistry, but involve those kind of things and to just you know, you could do a double-blind test to just see if there is a difference. Uh, have you ever heard about alchemy in your line of work? Uh, yes, but um, I confess to be more ignorant, uh, certainly more ignorant than you about the topic. I mean, um, I think when I hear the word until until just now, what you're telling me, uh, I would have said uh, it's, uh, it means two things. It could mean uh, trying to turn lead into gold which is like the, uh, the negative view of the historical alchemy in a nutshell. 
In fact, you know, people hardly uh, speak anything more than turning lead into gold. Uh, and then there's a kind of a modern term about uh, spiritual growth and insight uh, and um, a spiritual exploration. Um, but uh, I haven't, I'm, I'm pretty ignorant about uh, the historical alchemy in the, in the context of uh, meditation and spiritual practices. So that's new to me. Uh, I find it interesting. Um, and, but I've never, and although I practice uh, science and chemistry uh, and meditation, uh, they have been kind of uh, uh, separate, I don't know, separate parts of my life is maybe not the right way to say it, but certainly separate parts of the day. I might say, you know, I went to work and I did my chemistry thing. And then uh, maybe, uh, you know, early in the morning, I might be meditating. So um, it's intriguing. It's an intriguing idea to combine them. But uh, I, I have to confess mostly ignorance. One reason I have for thinking that is when it comes to indigenous cultures, for instance, in, in the Amazon, in the rainforest, for, for, for many years, for hundreds of years, uh, Western science uh, rejected their knowledge uh, because they were speaking their knowledge in a different kind of language, like they were speaking about the river being their sister and, you know, the tree is alive. They were using a terminology that's not really scientific. Uh, and uh, in recent years, uh, scientists have discovered that a lot of the things they know about the rainforest is true, if you just manage to translate the way they speak. Um, um, and uh, there's been a lot of studies regarding trees. And before they used to say the trees spoke to each other, they spoke to them, there was a mother tree. And a lot of this uh, stuff has been shown to be true. But uh, when you look at it with the Western science, you can explain it in, in different ways than what the indigenous are explaining. So in that way, I'm thinking with alchemy and chemistry that uh, there is a lot of things that could merge. It's just two different types of, two ways of looking at something. And uh, that's why it's always interesting to have someone who is uh, w well versed in the scientific way because it, and also into psychedelics, because uh, I think it was, in, the, in, his, in history, we had a time when everything was like mumbo-jumbo and then modern era comes and everything is scientific and I think the future model should be a combination of both. Because if you look at quantum theory, it becomes kind of mumbo-jumbo. It becomes more and more like magic, more than uh, science, you know, it, it's some far-fetched ideas. Right. Yeah, no, I understand. And also, I, I think you're, you're right to mention uh, quantum mechanics because uh, it's a good example and, and an important part of science and how um, science was built, uh, you know, the scaffold of science until the 1920s was built on uh, classical mechanics, you know, Isaac Newton and those people. And so that's how the world thought. I mean, that's how in the industrial revolution was born. And um, <clears throat> so that became like the, the mental model, if you will, for Western society. It's very classical. And, you know, things are all distinct. Um, 
you know, the, the pencil is distinct from the paper, I'm distinct from you, and so on and so forth. But quantum mechanics actually says, well, that's really not exactly right. And, um, and that really there's a, you know, there's, a, there's this continuum of existence that it's beyond our kind of everyday senses, or ordinary consciousness senses, certainly, uh, maybe not um, under psychedelic influence, but um, things like um, some of your listeners may be familiar, a good example, common example is the double slit experiment in quantum mechanics and how that uh, puzzled people who were trained in classical mechanics, classical optics, um, how that could be, how you could have particles that would behave this wave-like phenomenon. And um, you have to let go of the fact that the slits are actually distinct. They're not really distinct. You know, that's what everybody thinks it's a two-slit model. There's one slit here, there's one slit there. They don't talk to each other. But that's actually not how nature works. Nature actually has this all together. And, um, and that's a different way of thinking. And it's, uh, and it's different for society. The way society is still based on sort of classical reasoning, um, where everything is individualized and uh, separated. So, uh, but uh, I, like, I like this conversation, Alex. These are really good topics. So uh, you've written a book about psychedelics. What, what, what angle do you have on the topic? Well, the psychedelics um, maybe contrasted from my uh, 20s to my 60s. I'm in my 60s now. In my 20s, the idea of setting I'd never even heard of. Uh, I didn't use it for fun. I know some people use it for fun. That's kind of a foreign idea for me personally. They're they're kind of, at least at the doses I'm used to, they're pretty strong doses. And uh, they don't seem like fun, although they seem of value. But anyway, when I was young, uh, uh, you know, I used it for exploration, like reading those uh, Castaneda's books and trying to understand the world. And um, I think I got something out of it, but it was, uh, you know, the practice was a bit immature. And um, over the years, then there was a big, a big break in my use. And I write in the book about how um, I I was drinking too much alcohol, also drinking, uh, smoking too much uh, marijuana at times, and so on. I basically had um, unresolved problems that are actually very common in our society, very common, I would say, majority of people. Uh, And I discovered that uh, the psychedelics could be uh, a medicine, um, and a very powerful medicine, and that you could heal uh, the psyche, uh, with the help of a good guide, I think it's important. Uh, but the psychedelics could actually be medicines and also allow for sp- spiritual growth and increased uh, spiritual understanding. So uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are in this camp, uh, but um, it's an interesting uh, maybe a view of you know how you try things. You know, I'm kind of an embodiment example how you try things when you're younger, you experiment, uh, you learn some things, maybe you don't get too deep, uh, possibly. I don't want to say anything about your, you know, each individual listener, but, you know, that's how it was for me, and I think it's pretty common. You kind of dabble a little bit. And then, um, 
after the years you grow in maturity, even though you may not have uh, healed uh, or understood everything, but you still grow in maturity and you realize, uh, you know, life is finite here on this earth anyway. And um, maybe time to get going here and, um, and, um, and fix some things some understand some things, be uh, a healthier way in life uh, and that psychedelics uh, could be used as, as very powerful medicines and uh, sacred medicines, I would say, too. So is the book like a personal story of your own journey with this? or? Uh, yeah, well, the book is a collection of essays and uh, poems, uh, most of the essays in terms of how many words there are, but it's uh, scattered with some shorter poems. Uh, the essays are... Uh, they they do touch on a few different subjects, but they do have a pretty much a, a common theme, and um, uh, most of them uh, have some personal uh, memoir aspect. You know, something from my life, <clears throat> my experience. Uh, a few of them don't, but um, mostly do. They they talk about um, um, the psychological injuries uh, that I had and many people have in childhood, and how they manifest in ways that we don't understand as we walk through life. We behave certain ways and certain patterns that reflect things that might have happened, um, you know, uh, maybe before age six, uh, for example, or it could be later, but um, and things that we may not really remember or understand how, how we kind of reacted because that's the way we had to uh, in order to survive, in order to find some sort of uh, nurturing. Um, and so um, as we grow older, uh, we can understand these things. And so the book is mostly, uh, or at least largely, a uh, description of my uh, healing journey, uh, both first with MDMA, uh, which is uh, how a lot of people begin these things. There were two MDMA journeys. And then um, uh, in the book, I describe the three subsequent uh, journeys with uh, psilocybin mushrooms, what I call uh, the celestial washing machine. That's my name for uh, uh, psilocybin mushroom journeys because it's, uh, I, I just think it's an apt term for, uh, it's sort of celestial and also uh, a, a bit of a washing machine. They Like you're in the agitator, it kind of bumps you around a bit, but it does kind of clean you out and bring out the dirt uh, that uh, that's stuck in the crevices. So. Um, uh, so it's, it's, there's quite a bit of memoir, uh, but also just general observations about the process. Firsthand, you know, what, what, what did the altar look like? How did my guide uh, help me? How did he behave? How did I behave? How did I prepare uh, for a journey? How did I integrate uh, the journey? So um, that's, uh, that's kind of overview for the book. I have a friend that I've sat in many ayahuasca circles and... He's very sensitive and it, he always makes a lot of noise when he's doing uh, the ayahuasca and I always likened the way he sounds to it sounds like he's stuck in a washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Good. I'm glad to hear that. And he often agrees it feels like that too sometimes. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, some people... Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly at higher doses, uh, think medicines like ayahuasca and psilocybin mushrooms, um, they're not easy. Uh, some people, you might even call them an ordeal. 
but they're uh, they're they're good ordeals for the most part. Certainly, with good set and setting, um, they can be very healing and uh, really help helpful uh, in um, allowing us to understand more and be more at ease, more at peace, more understanding of each other. So, um, yeah, I'm all for the uh, celestial washing machine. So who would you recommend uh, reading your book? Somebody who has never tried it or somebody who's just dabbled with it or, or more of an expert? Oh, I, I try to write it for anyone at any age. Um, what it, it The book begins with a description of um, how common uh, childhood injuries are that affect us as adults. Uh, in fact, I, I talk about uh, research, uh, extensive research that's been done in the psychological field, including a reference work that's uh, at the uh, CDC, the Center for Disease Control. So people may know that acronym CDC from what's happening now with the COVID pandemic. Uh, the CDC um, also studied and, and does study uh, psychological uh, disease, if you will. And um, that work um, began with a study of 100, I think it's 117 individuals, a very big study uh, with Kaiser. Um, and I think that was in the 1990s, uh, if I recall, and then a lot of work subsequent. Anyway, they found that um, uh, at least about two thirds of the general population um, have suffered some significant childhood injury. And um, there have been a lot of follow-up studies that indicate how it leads to things like addiction, anxiety, depression, um, uh, also physical ailments. Uh, it actually tends to correlate with a shorter lifespan. So we're talking very serious implications uh, from childhood injury or childhood trauma. And um, so that's how the book starts out, because I'm a victim of it, of uh, childhood trauma. It affected me. I got it, had a functional addiction. That is, you know, I could work and, and so on. And, uh, but I drank in the evenings. Uh, typically, uh, later years, I would drink maybe a bottle of wine in an evening uh, by myself. Um, and, um, and then periods of time where I smoked pot every day. Um, and people, but it doesn't have to be uh, drugs or alcohol. It can be shopping. It can be eating, overeating. It can be, you know, you can even be. It could be yoga. If you if you're using yoga in such a such a way that you're actually trying to escape from yourself and not feel yourself, then anything, anything can be a kind of addiction. So um, that's how the book begins. And then, really, I wrote it to try to help people. That was the only idea, uh, to share my story. Uh, as a way that uh, maybe would help some people if they uh, if they can get through the denial denial and, and I know all about denial I lived decades in denial if they can get past the denial and um, and go on a healing journey and these psychedelic medicines with a with an experienced and qualified uh, guide slash therapist uh, can. Uh, can heal people in remarkable ways and remarkably quickly, too. So that's a, that's a quick sketch of the book. So it starts with a description of childhood injuries in general, cites a lot of uh, some of the literature, and then gets more toward my own example 
of uh, my past and my healing. When they did that study uh, regarding childhood traumas, uh, can you clarify what they considered trauma? Is it just, I mean, could it be small things like they see something scary and it affects them the whole life? Or is it more like abuse or uh, divorce of their parents or like, how do you define trauma? What? Right, right. Good question. Um, well, uh, in order to be scientific about it, the uh, CDC study uh, had specific definitions. Um, and there's a questionnaire. Actually, it's in the book. And of course, it's a, it's a CDC uh, questionnaire. And, um, and uh, you can find a reference uh, to it uh, in the book, but you can also Google it, too. It's uh, they're called the ACEN study, A-C-E small s. So A-C-E is a uh, let me see, adverse childhood event. So if you Google ACE or ACE study, A-C-E, on CDC, uh, combine it with CDC in your search, you'll, you'll pick it up. And um, so th there's a questionnaire. Uh, I, I put a copy in my book, but you can get it online. And the questionnaire has 10 questions. And um, it, uh, and you make a score, like how many times you answer yes to one of these 10 questions, that's your score. If you answer three times, your score is three, and so on. And there are things like, um, uh, certainly there are horrific things. Were you beaten or sexually abused? Uh, you know, really, really big, terrible things. But there are other things, too, that are more subtle. Were your parents divorced? Did anyone in your family uh, commit or attempt suicide? Could be a parent, or could be someone, a relative, um, and or and then there are more subtle things, uh, like um, were your parents uh, or your, one of your caregivers uh, emotionally absent? You know, were they not really there to nurture and give you love? And so uh, trauma can be uh, an, a single event one day, but trauma can also be uh, you know years of neglect. Uh, and uh, somebody called it uh, death by a, a thousand paper cups, cuts. Um, so it can be just, uh, you know, go to your room until you feel better and over and over until you have to behave in a way that's not natural in order to be accepted by your parent. So it comes in a huge spectrum of, uh, of, of situations and events. Uh, some some might pe people might consider small, but they can add up. Um, so, um, so that's kind of a long-winded answer, Alex, to uh, the fact that many, many different things constitute uh, childhood trauma. And again, it's extremely common. The majority of the population is in that, uh, in that category. I've been maybe unnecessarily worried because I have uh, this uh, four-year-old daughter and uh, there's been a few times where my sometimes she gets she watches youtube you know kids programs there's been a few times where i've uh, haven't been able to uh, stop her from seeing something that's scary it's still a children's program so it's not but some i don't know why some people make certain things in children's programs but anyway like scary so she dreams about it and talks about it for weeks and i'm trying to stay calm and like make it explain it in, in a good way to her and that but inside I'm like oh no have I created a trauma now but maybe I'm using the term trauma uh, for something that maybe that's small uh, 
but it's always you always paranoid as a parent to uh, you know but i mean it's, it's probably impossible to stop a child from i mean maybe it's it's good that they have nightmares i mean you can't really protect your child from ever forming a nightmare i guess <laughs> right and and that's you know that's a really good topic alex because i don't want your listeners to think like oh as parents you know for those listeners who are parents um, your job is to protect them from every possible, uh, you know, adverse event or adverse uh, circumstance. That's, it's not possible, uh, just as you say. Um, but what you, what you can do as a parent is do your best and know that um, it's so important that they feel that they're loved just as they are. They don't have to be anything different. They don't have to... Uh, you know, uh, I mentioned in the book, for example, um, some people, you know, some parents would say, oh, I'd never spank my kid. I would never do that. And, and good. And, you know, fine, because uh, physical violence is really not a good thing. It's a really bad thing. But they might not hesitate to give their kid time out a lot. And what you're doing when you give a child time out is you're isolating them. And you're telling them that uh, they're not okay the way they are. They have to do something different to be part of the family. And so, um, so part of it is education. And, of course, that's why uh, parent, parental education is so important. But the, the bottom line is, is to really be there for your child and just give them unconditional love, whatever they do. And, uh, and then chances are things are going to be turn, turn out just fine. So these traumas uh, that people can have, uh, they don't even remember the actual event or, or whatever it was they were uh, exposed to, they, but it creates an effect when they're older. Uh, well, they're both kinds. There, there, there are cases where uh, you know, an adult may remember certain instances, uh, but also many that are, uh, that are repressed. And also uh, things that really do happen to uh, uh, infants and, and very young children, like uh, age two and below, um, the, the brain isn't sufficiently developed to really store the memory. So uh, people talk about infantile, um, uh, let's see, amnesia, which I'm not sure that's the right phrase or a good phrase, but basically the fact that, you know, with very young, you don't have the capability to make the memory. So... Uh, but a lot of, for my case, uh, I had some inkling of some things, but it wasn't until um, I went into a therapy and worked on it uh, that I could pull up some, uh, and also with the help of the psychedelic medicine, I could pull up some med some memories that happened, uh, like, you know, age four and five uh, for, in my case. So, but it's a mix. So, um, and a lot of, and there are a lot of cases where um, I might mention, you know, somebody will say, well, yeah, you know, my dad hit me sometimes, but uh, I'm okay. You know, I'm all, I'm all good. And, um, and that might be, you might be all good. But if you, you know, if you reflect on, you know, do I have any of these symptoms? Uh, do I drink every day or do I smoke every day? Uh, do I uh, have anxiety, worry about things a lot or am I depressed? Then, you know, if you want to be honest with yourself, then the answer is it has has affected you deeply. But it, but the good news is that there's uh, ways to heal. And that's, the, of course, what my message is, that the psychedelic medicines used in the right setting um, 
uh, can be great, uh, great healing tools. I, I don't want to say that it's impossible to heal without psychedelic medicines, but boy, they sure do work, and they and they sure do work pretty quickly too. So uh, I, I think we're blessed to have them, and that's what indigenous cultures have shown us. Uh, that's why they've been around uh, for so long, uh, is because they help people. Yeah, they uh, they can work really fast. Uh, I've had a lot of experiences with ayahuasca, and it's astonishing how fast you can realize you had an issue you weren't aware of, and in the same evening you get cured from it. So uh, I think that's quite amazing how it can reveal it and then also help you. I mean, it doesn't really cure it for you, but it helps. Well, when you see it, you get cured from it in a sense, I guess. Right, you can't. It certainly can. I mean, it de- it depends on the case, right, and also the environment and and all. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, and maybe it takes more than one journey. But yeah, there are many instances. Uh, probably you've experienced, and many of your listeners and myself have experienced where, you know, something came up and that you didn't know about or didn't realize, and um, and you like somehow resolved it in that same journey and felt freed from it. Uh, so um, sometimes it takes a guide to help you do that. Uh, there's some, you know, more difficult cases and it's good to have maybe people talk about corrective emotional experiences and um, a guides can be very helpful. So I, I'd like to encourage people to find, if they're interested in this, to find a very experienced guide, somebody who's really qualified. And, um, but yeah, they, the, the medicines are just amazing. Uh, the things that they can do. It doesn't really matter what the answer is, because as long as the psychedelics work, that's all that matters. But I'm always curious what people think regarding this. And it's, uh, do you think the things you see and hear or maybe are told or any wisdom you perceive during a psychedelic experience, do you think it all comes from within or does something come from without? (laughs) <laughs> that's a big question uh and um and maybe depends on your beliefs and so on um i think mostly uh and and you know i could try to get out wiggle off the hook by saying both but uh if i had to pick one um i guess i would say without i mean well you know maybe now i'm reflecting <laughs> that's a it's a it's a it's a difficult maybe even tricky question um you know what's within and what's without um and maybe there that that distinction is somewhat uh arbitrary but i don't i guess what i would want to say is um i don't believe you know it's just all in my you know my particular neural network uh in my brain i think it's bigger than that yeah because i've i've always had that kind of question in the back of my mind always and uh, sometimes i've had experiences that i could actually trace uh that are like an amplified version of something from within and other times i've had experiences where it only seems like it doesn't come from me at all this it's external so maybe it's a mix mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think that's a good answer it's it's everything it's yeah can be in and out so have you had any uh, experiences or any thoughts regarding the possibility of an afterlife when you've d- done your 
your ceremonies? Oh, good question. Um, uh, my personal, uh, I guess you say beliefs, um, uh, beliefs are that uh, I, I do believe in spirituality. I do believe that um, in spirit, I don't believe it's just, uh, you know, a bunch of flesh and blood and bones and all. So the answer, short answer is yes. Exactly how that all works, I don't proclaim to know. But I do believe that um, when this body is done, um, that um, our spirit is not done. And um, uh, that uh, um, it's, uh, you know, the Buddhists would call it the unborn. Um, but, uh, you know, lots of religions talk about it. Um, but it's our, I, th I think of it as our consciousness. It's, uh, it's, it's the one who knows. The real, real observer, I think, is the, uh, is the best, the closest I can seem to come to it in this life. And also I've been, um, I think, blessed to have experiences of, uh, with uh, what I believe to be the divine light, some sort of uh, light that um, is beyond uh, this, uh, you know, um, you know, these hands and feet and the desk and the pencil and so on. Um, and that kind of um, supports my belief that uh, there's more than um, this body. And so when the body is done, uh, you know, there's more to, there's more to go. There's more things going to happen. My impression of scientists uh, over here in Europe is that they're usually atheists. Uh, is it more acceptable to be not an atheist as a scientist in, in America? Well, that's a, that's a good question because, you know, first of all, there's lots of scientists and I don't know of any survey, so I, I couldn't give you statistics. I can just give you anecdotes from, you know, conversations I've had. Um, I think there's a lot of scientists who are, have a spiritual uh, belief of one sort or another. Uh, a lot of them go to, uh, you know, churches or temples or whatever. Um, but even, of course, you know, some who have a spiritual belief who don't go to, you know, organized religion, too. And then there's some that are just atheists and very materialist. You know, they think, you know, it's this stuff and, uh, you know, the DNA uh, gets the energy going and, um, you know, and that's that's it. Nothing more. Um, so I think it's pretty common, but I can't put a number on it. But um, is it, it's, I think it might even be like this general population. I mean, that would be my first guess. Um, there's going to be a whole wide spectrum of people and what they what they believe. But then for scientists, too. So. As you have some knowledge in chemistry, you've never had any uh, any urges to extract psychedelics from many different plants. Or I mean, I know I don't know if you know who Shulgin is. He he uh, he practically invented many different kinds of psychedelics, or or exposed them uh, in 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 some cases. Uh, you, have you ever done anything like that? I did when I was uh, younger, and I had some lab equipment around. Uh, a friend of mine and myself uh, dabbled a bit in that. But uh, you, what we found was, um, uh, first of all, it was illegal, and we didn't want to get thrown out of school. <laughs> and uh, 
And then, you know, you, these substances usually you could come by, but also uh, like an LSD, you know, you could you could buy it if you wanted to. Um, I like I mentioned early, uh, the, uh, I was interested in peyote in particular, and I can't remember now how we found the source, but we found a source of peyote. And so I, I like I kind of, uh, um, you know, felt more comfortable with the natural source. Uh, but um it, you know, it was just a little too risky uh, uh, in the, for me to to get in the lab and make things or or, or purify uh, substances from natural products too. Even if you're an expert, uh, it would still be scary, I would imagine, to extract or invent a new psychedelics and then try it. You know, because knowing how they work, you don't really know how something new would work. Right. I, I, I kind of marvel at that. And now it used to be, I don't know if you're aware of this, but it used to be uh, back in the days of uh, Hoffman, you know, who invented the LSD, um, that that was uh, what was considered the proper thing to do. You tried it yourself. And um, nowadays that's clearly not the case. Um, and um now I don't know if Sh- I don't know Shogun's history that well. I mean I I, can, I know I know he, he synthesized and tried many things. I know that. I don't know if he like gave a little bit to a rat first just to make sure that, you know that it didn't kill the rat right away. I don't know if he did that. I'm kind of curious. Uh, maybe his wife is surviving would know that, or maybe you do, Alex. I'm, but uh, but yeah, they uh, they they pretty much rolled up their sleeves and uh, said, let's give it a go. And they would they would start with uh, what seemed to be a small dose, although uh, you know it's quite a story about Hoffman. LSD is so potent; such a tiny dose can have such a big effect that the first time he really tried it, the bicycle trip, he thought he was taking just a tiny, tiny amount, and never expected anything so dramatic to happen. So, um, but uh, yeah, it's a little scary uh, uh, to do that, and. Um, uh, but my hat's off to Shogun. I mean, um, I, I, I'm glad for him. Uh, I think the, a lot of the world is. Uh, our, you know, the world that maybe you and I talk to uh, is glad for his uh, bravery and his ability as a chemist, a very good chemist. It's amazing how uh, these kind of substances, when you break them down to their uh, molecules, uh, that you put that in your system and it changes things so much uh, I'm, won- I'm wondering that well again we talked about it a bit before but either it's just that the brain is so finely tuned to perceive the way reality is so if you just change it a little everything becomes weird or maybe it just like opens up uh, portals that you don't know exist unless you it's like the brain is like an antenna and you just uh, like on a radio you move the dials so you get another station or something uh, uh, could be both it just seems so impossible that just a tiny little molecule change in your brain would cause such big effects and also hearing what I mean not everybody has had it but uh, if you have, you know what I mean. This thing of like, kind of like hearing some other speaking to you in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had that experience and seeing them too. Um, 
And I think it's amazing, too. I just I, I kind of shake my head in wonder. Um, LSD is, of course, the prime example because uh, such tiny amounts have such big effects. Uh, but other things, uh, you know, like uh, I've had uh, since I wrote that book, uh, some experiences with 5-MeO DMT, which is uh, more potent than DMT. It just takes a tiny amount um, to make such a big effect. And um, yeah, I mean, even as a chemist, I just and I, I go and I put my hands on my head and I go, oh, my head is this big. My brain is this big. And then I look at the amount of material that, that totally changes my consciousness. I go, how does that happen? And uh, so I'm totally, I totally on, on your wavelength. And I like the, uh, I like the antenna idea. I've heard before too. And, um, it, but I haven't heard like uh, what you just said, which I also really like, which is, oh, you just change the dial a little bit and you get a different station. <laughs> I like that. Um, I, and, and I have no explanation for it. I mean, um, I mean, I have a superficial scientific explanation. It's not my field of study, but I, I can read the literature and, you know, it's okay, 5H2E or 5H2A receptor. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I understand what that means. But, um, uh, but on a, on a uh, physiological scale, a human scale, uh, it's mind-boggling how such tiny amounts of material can totally change your consciousness. So uh, Dennis McKenna famously said uh, that uh, everything in our body are, are drugs, or and everything we eat are drugs. Everything we take in changes. You know, if you eat a lot of sugar, you change. Um, so there's really no like pure natural state, I guess, if you fast or something maybe but even that creates an effect so that's also a sort of drug um, but um, I'm wondering do you think that uh, there will ever be a time when uh, we accept that everything is basically chemistry in a sense uh, I mean it can sound a bit cold but even like if you fall in love the emotions can be traced back to you get more chemicals of I mean I'm a layman so I'm just saying the word chemicals but you know what I mean like you get different uh, things flowing in your body or if you're really tired you get more of one thing than you when you're awake and that so basically if you hook up a human being to a machine and you just pump in these different kinds you can change the emotions and feelings of a person uh, so if it's all just chemicals uh, I don't know I don't really have a question uh, but what are your thoughts about all that <laughs> well yeah I mean uh, well certainly as a as a chemist as somebody who uh, you know went to school and made it my profession uh, I, I definitely think about that and um, also um, the fact that we're not so isolated, like you mentioned your diet, what you eat, uh, you know, is that saying you are what you eat. Um, and there's a lot of truth to that. And, and also maybe in just in terms of psychedelics, it's, uh, uh, those things, but also, um, we sometimes forget, um, a lot of, uh, our recent studies have focused on, um, what they call the, uh, microbiome. Uh, which are, you know, basically a couple pounds of bacteria that live inside the intestines of each of us. 
and what um, what how it affect, affects us, including can be affecting our mental state. Uh, there's a, a big autism uh, research right now going on that has to do with the microbiome, and and you go well, well the brain's up here, the belly, you know, the intestines are down there. How in the world, uh, you know, are they connected? And uh, well, of course, the bloodstream they're connected, um, and um, so uh, it's a comp- incredibly complicated system. We are, um, and I when we are part and not uh, separate from our environment. I mean, even oxygen, right? You have to take a breath every, you know, whatever, second or two. And, um, you know, that's a chemical from the outside. Otherwise, we, you know, <laughs> you don't survive very long without the oxygen. So um, we are living, breathing, active pots of chemicals. Um, and, um, and I think it's grounding, a little bit grounding to remember that. Uh, kind of humbling, right? It's easy for us to get the, e- the ego can get uh, kind of inflated and think we're imp- important and, you know, maybe somewhat. But um, we're also uh, a big pot of chemicals and we got a couple of pounds of bacteria that are maybe affecting how we feel and think. And um, take a little, you know, a couple, you know, some micrograms of LSD, it totally changes our perception. Maybe, like you say, uh, I like that, uh, changing the radio station, turn the dial a little bit. And um, um, so it's complicated. It's, uh, it's a lot just to, to ponder. Um, I think that the most, you know, simplest thing, you know, it's so complicated that it's beyond anything you can think of in a minute. But um, it's the fact that we're not really isolated beings. We're part of this world. We're not separate from nature. We are really... A manifestation of nature, and um, I think it's good to remember and respect that. Indigenous cultures, when they do healing in like a shamanic way, I always notice that it seems they put more focus on the stomach than maybe in Western medicine. And I think it makes sense because I I always likened if the body is a car, then the brain is just the driver, but the engine is the stomach. So if the engine's broken, you can't drive the car properly, you know, uh, and they always use uh, um, different uh, diets to create different effects, and uh, I always believe that uh, you can trace most Ill- illnesses to what's going on in your stomach, but it's not uh, um, it's not accepted by many doctors and that, and they often the doctors have a tendency to like if you have a problem in your in your liver let's say they only look at the liver they don't look at any other organ because it has nothing to do with the liver but whereas more alternative ways you could look at well the lungs are not feeling now i'm just making it up but as an example the lungs are not feeling well and that creates this effect in the liver you know like and I find sometimes a problem with science because uh, an archaeologist knows everything about archaeology, a biologist knows everything about biology, but they 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 never um, cross, you know, they never, there's no synergy. They, every department in science is focused on its section, so, uh, and um, I think science would do well if they adopted more of a 
polymath kind of way where you kind of uh, uh, mix all the different branches to make uh, new discoveries. I don't know how it is in your field that you worked in. Well, I I think um, you know the things I did that um, uh, for my career to make a living were more isolated to traditional. Although you know the, the science kept advancing, but um, they were more in that isolated model. Like if I was studying protein chemistry, I was you know pretty focused on a you know I had pretty much blinders on and I wasn't looking at other things, um, even though it's a big field protein chemistry. Um, but and, but I think the medical example is particularly good because uh, you talked about healing. And of course, that's what my book is about, healing and um, with me- these medicines and uh, indigenous cultures, too, which, of course, uh, the people I, I work with uh, are trained, uh, have been trained by some of these indigenous cultures as well. And um, uh, how I think there are aspects of modern medicine, or I should maybe a growing mo- movement, you might say, uh, within uh, medicine to uh, start to expand the horizons of their of their vision. Um, the microbiome is an interesting example. People, you know, it's only in the last few years people started to understand, like, oh, this bacteria that lives inside us, like. You know, it's secreting chemicals and depends which bacteria you have and so on. And uh, but Chinese medicine, for example, if somebody feels your pulse and uh, looks at you and, or does uh, acupuncture or acupressure, uh, gives you Chinese herbs that are uh, worked out from you know millennia. Um, so there's there are people, more and more people, maybe not real common now, but more and more people who, um, you know, I think the word or the phrase is holistic uh, medicine, looking at the body as a as a whole organism, not just like you like you mentioned, like not just the liver or, uh, you know, not just the lungs. So hopefully that we'll see more of that in, as time goes by. So if people want to read your book, where can they find it? Or, and do you have like a website? It'll be on Amazon, but it'll also be on other websites, too. Um, uh, excuse me, other vendors uh, too, like Apple Book and Barnes and Nobles and and whatnot. And um, if they go to my website, they'll be able to uh, find that information. And my my website is uh, uh, www.chrisbecker.org. So Chris Becker, just one word: C H R I S B, like boy E C K E R. dot org. And um, they'll be able to find. Uh, uh, how to buy it there, and, and a little bit of, about the book. Uh, and uh, there's a blog there, too. I've written some other things. And uh, also a resources page, links to uh, all kinds of different uh, uh, societies and, um, and, you know, just different resources, too. So the, hopefully that people can enjoy the website. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you, Alex. I, I really appreciate your time and uh, the invitation. Check out chrisbecker.org. Recently on Bill Burr's podcast, uh, he gave some good advice regarding what to teach kids in school and what to teach teenage uh, sons or teenage boys, I could say. Uh, I thought it was pretty good advice, so I want to share it with you all now. 
Uh, I'm sure you could also adopt it into your own life, even if you're not a teenager yourself or a parent. The advice is pretty solid, in my opinion. It's time for advice. Hey! Your host, Billy Burns. That's me. And I'm ripping off this melody from somebody else. This is something I was talking to somebody the other day about what they should teach people in school. If you have a crush, if they have a crush on a girl, right? Just walk up and say hello. Tell her that you like her and see if she'll go out with you. Simple as that. Get over that fear. All right? Because here's the thing. It's always embarrassing the first time you do it. If they're not doing it yet, it's always fucking embarrassing. But... Once you do it, it's like doing that first open mic. The first time you bomb, you survive it. And then somewhere along the line, you learn to find the humor in bombing. And if you can do that, you'll never be afraid to ask for what you want in life. So right now, the chicks you want to bomb with are the ones when you're 11 and 14, because that's just puppy love. But someday when the girl of your dream comes along, you want to have the confidence to walk up and say hello so you get what you want in life. The most important thing ever, finding the person you're supposed to spend your life with so you can be happy, all right? Secondly, you got to teach somebody how to break up with somebody. Very simple, but they never teach you. You just tell the person, just say, hey, listen, uh, we need to talk. They sit down, what's up? Just say, listen. I think you're a great person, but, you know, I'm just, I'm not happy. You know, and as much as I like you and everything, I I just, there isn't that thing that's making me feel like this is a lifetime love. I have love for you, but I don't have life, full lifetime love for you. Something like that. And there's nothing anybody can say to that shit. And then just don't get fucking roped back into it. And then they're going to cry and they're going to go through all of that shit. And there's no reason to be mean or anything like that. And just sit there, hug them, be nice about it. And you can just say, listen, I don't want to waste any more of your time or my time. We should both go out and find the people that we're supposed to be with. And as much as this hurts you right now, someday you're going to find that guy that wants to love you for the rest of your life. Okay. And you'll be very thankful that I set you free to go find him. Something like that. That last line might have been a little corny, but that's, you got to teach him that. All right. Next, teach him about money. All right. They're going to be getting to the point soon where they're going to be going off to college, believe it or not, in the next five years for that kid who's 14. And then they're going to give him a fucking credit card and they're going to get in all of this. And the the, the fucking bankers, what they want to do is get you fucking in so much goddamn debt before you even realize what the fuck happens, you're running on the wheel for the rest of your life and maybe in your 60s you come out of it. All right? I would show them the Goodfellas scene after they knock off that fucking, the Lithuanza heist when Robert De Niro, don't buy anything, don't buy anything. If I can give you any fucking advice now that I'm cleaning out my garage and looking at all the fucking shit I saved over the years, don't buy anything. Don't collect anything. Don't get involved in that shit. Live a very sparse, sparsely furnished fucking life. Do not give in to fucking consumerism. All right? 
Live well within your means. Okay? Always have enough money that if you're not liking a job, you have the time to be like, fuck you, I'm out of here, and find something else. If you suddenly get laid off, if there's a fucking pandemic, you can survive. All right? Do not get involved in living week to fucking week. Um, less is more. Less is more. Less is more. And then as far as all the kids that you go to school with, whatever they think about you, none of it matters. Because in the next five years, you're going to graduate and you're never going to see 99% of them ever again. Even with fucking social media, you're never going to see them again. So you have to listen to your voice and what the fuck you want to do in life. And you follow that. Okay? And know that when you set off to make a dream happen, that when you tell people that that's what you're doing, the bigger the dream, the more negative feedback you're going to get. And you have to understand, as Tom Papa told me, that whenever he made a big decision in life, he realized that, you know, so much of people's reactions to what he was doing had nothing to do with him. It was them working out their own bullshit. All right? And then just be uh, be a good shit. Don't fuck people over. Try not to hurt anybody. You're a human being. You'll make mistakes. You will. Just try to own up to them and try not to repeat your mistakes. And other than that, you know, be forgiving of yourself and uh, try not to be a cunt. There you go. All right. Notice none of that involved your grades or having two years of a fucking language and all that other horse shit they try to get you to fucking buy into. What did I tell you? You don't buy anything, you hear me? Don't buy anything. I'm going to close this episode with something called Incantation to Liberation by Hermetic Vision. Go to hermeticvision.com to check them out. Freedom is in the mind. Words I speak to liberation from the shackles of this plane, from the greedy grasp of tyrants. As my own, I claim my name. I'm the sovereign of my being. I am that which I create. I'm the writer of my story. I'm the master of my fate. I live debt-free in abundance. I have gifts of love to share. In the eyes of every stranger, look for me and I'll be there. I am wisdom, I am power. I am magic, I am love. Every minute, every hour, as below and as above. Where I stand is my land. In this field, I am healed. In this place, I am grace. In this time, I am divine. Faced with any doubt or challenge, I can handle liberty. I am rhyme and I am reason. I am my own authority. We are different on the surface. We are one thing at the core. Masters, shepherds, lords and archons, we don't need you anymore. All the chains have now been broken, flowing freely in the stream. All these words I now have spoken, I am lucid in this dream. I am lucid 